Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McLennahan, and in this episode, my guests and I are going to discuss some of the many issues faced by overseas social workers who have come to the UK to practice. We'll explore the challenges diaspora social workers can face when working in England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, and the steps employers can take to address the problems we identify. I'm really pleased to be joined by Priya David and Duke Tran, both of whom are co-chairs of the Basra Diaspora Special Interest Group. Priya and Duke, welcome. You're so welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. How are you guys doing? Priya, how are you? I'm well, I'm well. And then for a long day, but I'm doing well. Thank you. Yes, it is. It's uh, just coming after five. So let's keep the energy up for the next sort of 45 minutes or so. Duke, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you, Andy. Uh, great to uh, hear from you and Priya. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this podcast. Great. And you're both first time on Let's Talk Social Work. It's an absolute joy to have you here. Um, I want to start off by looking at the big picture. So who are we referring to when we speak about diaspora social workers? We might talk about diaspora social workers. We might talk about overseas social workers. We might talk about international social workers. Um, what do we mean in relation to those terms? And what percentage of the social work workforce in the UK do they represent? Okay, I can answer that in terms of diaspora social workers. They are social workers who qualified overseas or outside UK or those from diaspora communities uh, who qualified and continue to practice in the UK. We have at least 22% of social workers in the UK who are trained abroad and are called diaspora social workers. Give us that number again, Priya. Sorry, I missed that. 22% of social workers on the whole oh, are trained abroad. Okay, okay. Yeah. That's more than I would have imagined. That's quite surprising. Okay, okay. So it's a big chunk of the the, the workforce, more than a fifth. Um, just out of interest, before we we'll talk about this in more detail later on. But so you're both involved in the diaspora social work group. Um, you both trained overseas. Priya, where did you um, study social work? I studied social work in India. I did okay. my masters in social work in India. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. And Duke, yourself? I studied in Australia, uh, in Melbourne, uh, and. Uh, I did a, actually a postgraduate in, in social work after my first degree in science at Melbourne University. Oh, wow. Okay. That's not, you occasionally have a social worker who studied law or a social worker who studied sociology or some form of social science, but studied uh, science first. That's interesting. What, <laughs> just, just, just tell me, just humor me. What was the, what was the actual degree in science? It was just a, a, a science degree with a, with a major in psychology. And it was through the psychology route that I felt, hmm, I've got more of a, um, affinity with uh, in working with people rather than with okay. rats and stats. Okay. Rather rats and stats. Okay. But yes, psychology, I get that. That makes sense. Um, Priya, um, what countries do diaspora social workers working in, in the UK tend to emigrate from? I'm sure, I don't imagine we can be too specific, but kind of general kind of overview. I think I can say that about 67% of international social workers are from five regions of the globe. Um, they're mainly from Australia, New Zealand, North America, South Africa, and South Central Asia. But the latest um, uh, information from uh, Social Work England uh, indicates they are from South Africa, Zimbabwe, and India. Okay. Is that a sort of Commonwealth thing going on there, certainly with Australia and India, I'm guessing? Yeah. Um, sort of historic ties to the UK. Um, what sort of strengths are overseas social workers bringing to the profession in the UK? Are there are there strengths that diaspora social workers are bringing that aren't um, in the profession at present? I think they bring a lot of strengths. The diaspora social workers, most of them are uh, very well experienced social workers who've done very good jobs back home. 
And um, uh, especially in, in countries like, um, you know, third world countries, there's a lot of therapeutic work, community work. They're exposed to a, a lot of difficult situations and they come in with a lot of knowledge of uh, um, uh, cultural competency and they bring a lot of information about the different countries they've worked in. So they bring a lot of strengths to UK social work um, um, you know, community, especially in the context of UK being very globalized now, and the wisdom they bring is, uh, you know, is really valuable. Absolutely. I, I want to. What about the pull factors that attract overseas social workers to the UK? Is there an understanding of the motivations that are bringing diaspora social workers uh, to the UK? You know, is it is it a case of gaining experience over a short period? Is it a case of in some in some circumstances, improving living standards, or is it, you know, is it a case of seeking to settle for the longer term? Do we have an understanding of that? I think, especially from um, uh, countries like um, you know the the like South Africa and uh, African countries and India and Southeast Asia, where people are coming in terms of um, gaining experience, they're coming to learn, they're coming to settle down. Um, you know, and so uh, and to improve their living standards, they come here with a lot of expectations and they do want to settle down and make this work for them. Thank you. And just to, out of curiosity, I know that with young people in Australia, where you're from, New Zealand as well, there is quite a tradition of travelling for, you know, a couple of years. A cousin in Australia came to the UK for a number of years and did that. Uh, does that tend to be with younger people? Does that tend to be before they go to university or, or after? I'm thinking, you know, the sort of Australian cohort of social workers, would they fall into that group that are travelling to, to see Europe? <laughs> well, I, I fell into the group of those that have been qualified um, and then and then travelled. So in Australia, you need to um, qualify as a social worker and the, and the training is from a university. Um, so, yeah, so often it's after the university, university course um, that we would travel. And you're right. Um, the motivation is not necessarily, not necessarily about... Uh, you know, coming to establish a new life in a new country. Um, for most uh, in Australia and New Zealand, it's about travelling to, uh, you know, to see Europe. And uh, London in particular is, is a gateway to uh, the rest of Europe and to do a bit of exploring. Now, I understand that it can be a pretty arduous process for overseas social workers to satisfy the requirements of the UK's social work regulators. So different regulator for England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But... Um, Duke, if we think about Social Work England, can you tell me about the process for being accredited to practice in England and what it takes for overseas social workers to meet the requirements? Yes, it, it can be quite an arduous process. Um, social Work England requires them to produce evidence of their qualification certificate and to have that certified by a lawyer or a notary for these documents, um, that they are genuine. Um, the documents, if they're not uh, in uh, English, then they must be uh, certified translation of those documents as well. Um, and uh, they also need to produce evidence of um, their address and uh, their identity. Um, there is also a scrutiny fee of £495 for overseas applicants in addition to the £90, which is has to be paid annually for registration to practice in the UK, in, in England. Um, the uh, scrutinizers will then assess your qualification to see if it's of a sufficient standard to practice in the UK. Um, and if it's not, then uh, they may well be asked to complete an interview to assess their competency to practice. 
or to undertake further practice uh, under supervision arrangements or formal training or, uh, or informal training to meet uh, any gaps. Um, additionally, um, for qualifications awarded for more than two years ago, the applicant uh, has to show they have worked, um, uh, show that they have been working, uh, and it is uh, if it's between two and five years since they qualified, then uh, they'll need to show uh, that they've spent 30 days updating uh, their skills, knowledge and experience. Uh, if more than five years uh, qualified, then they'll need to show that they've spent uh, at least 60 days updating uh, their skills, knowledge and experience. Um, uh, and this can be uh, gained uh, through uh, supervised practice, where the applicant is supervised by a registered social worker uh, or a uh, recognised social worker, formal study and private study. In addition to all of that, they also have to show that they uh, meet the English proficiency test and demonstrate knowledge of that through uh, a, a IELTS qualification um, or if they were trained initially in the first um, uh, and native um, language, which has to be English. So as you can see, there's a lot of um, hurdles, particularly if you're from overseas, to go through. Uh, to meet the registration requirements before you can even be offered a job because no employee in, the, uh, in England would accept you if, if they know that you, that you won't be able to be registered once you uh, are here in England. Um, and of course, there's also the uh, necessary police checks and clearances that uh, you'd have to go through. So in, in the round, I think it is much more arduous and complex than um, a social worker here with a degree here. To register. And do, are you aware of, um, do, do social work um, employers and uh, organisations that are recruiting overseas social workers, do they tend to support um, applicants through any of that? Or is it very much for the applicant to find their own way through the system? Yes. Yeah, so um, I, I think it depends on which route they come in. So if uh, they were supported through an agency, then, then all those uh, kinds of that application process and visa process uh, normally lands with the um, recruitment agency that supports the recruitment process and that is part of their work um, is to help the applicant to um, prepare not only for the interview but also for uh, the visa application process um, and also to help the sponsor prepare for the sponsorship process as well. Um, so that's you know that's that's one that's one way in which all those risks can be mitigated and hence the popularity. Uh, of local authorities and large employers to go by um, the specialist agency route. Um, but if they are actually um, recruited directly by the local authorities, then they themselves would have to ensure um, that uh, the candidate um, would be uh, able to be registered before they are offered a job. Um, and uh, likewise, if uh, the candidate was over here in the UK, for instance, uh, already, then they'd have to go through the, uh, the ordinary process of registering or ensuring that they are registered before they can apply for the job. Thank you, Dick. And now, according to Social Work England, there's a vacancy rate of about 20% across all social work services in England. Are UK employers or recruitment agencies, are they actively recruiting social workers in other countries in response to this situation? Priya, is that, is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, 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 definitely, because the vacancy rates are quite high. They're not able to keep staff. 
Um, the re- retention is a big issue. And so they have to look beyond UK. And so they are recruiting from outside. And we also know that there has been um, an 175% registration uh, of new applicants to UK. Um, you know, so so they are constantly looking for um, uh, social workers from abroad to fill those vacancies. Because social work, local authorities are really stretched. And in relation to the recognition of qualifications, now, Priya, you said you were uh, qualified to master's level um, uh, doing your studies in India. Are you aware of any instances in which social work qualifications awarded in a specific country haven't been considered relevant or of a high enough quality by any of the UK regulators? Are you specifically asking about India or any other country, overseas countries? Oh, no, no. Sorry, no, no. I was just, I was just mentioning that you in India were qualified to master's level, um, but I'm just thinking elsewhere in the world. Yeah, we, uh, we've recently, yeah, we recently, um, as the Baswa SIG had met with social work regulators and there were many lo- uh, social workers from some of the um, African countries who said that some of the universities in, in some parts of Africa are uh, approved, but in the same state or the same country, some of the universities are not. So I think it's more about, um, it, it depends on whether they meet the expectation of, uh, you know, Social Work England. And so they go uh, university by university, but usually, yeah, so it's it's not, uh, ground rule that all the universities in a particular country will be approved. Yeah, and in, in just coming to your experience, is it standard for social workers in India to train to master's level? Is that the way things are generally done, or was that a choice that you made to take your studies on further? For for a long time, it was master's course. So I, you know, as okay. Duke like, like Duke, I was a science student and then decided to do uh, <laughs> social work degree. So it was a master's course. And uh, but now, recently, I've heard they have introduced, um, you know, BSWs too. But uh, for a long, long time, it's a master's course. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's really interesting to know. So. It would be fair to say then standard education in, in India would be social work students are being educated to a higher level than they are in the UK. Would that be a fair assessment? Yes, yes. Okay. I, you know, I can, I can at least say for myself, I did not have any problem in terms of registering myself or coming over or straight away my university was approved. The number of, uh, uh, you know, placement hours were much more than they expected. So it was a straight yes. Um, you know, so yes, I, I would say, the, and the master's qualification helps at any point in time. Yeah. Thank you, Priya. Duke, Priya, something we don't tend to talk about too much in the podcast we were kind of saturated with conversations about um, COVID and the pandemic for a long time, but also Brexit. Um, but it's something I think we have to talk about in relation to the experiences of overseas social workers in the UK. Um, while you've been here, you've been here for a long time. Have you sensed with Brexit any impacts in relation to deterioration in attitudes towards um, immigrants since 2016 when Britain uh, voted to leave the EU? That, that's a good question, Andy. Um in terms of social workers um, that are leaving the uh, register uh, of social workers in social working, I think that would be really um, good to have that data. Um, I, I think we've only got uh, nationality when they register or when they renew, but not when they leave. So it's something that I'll be uh, very keen to um, to get information on. Um, so the impact of um, Brexit could potentially be that people leave, but we need a bit more information. Uh, on that. Uh, We know that, for instance, in the uh, care sector, uh, many um, of our European colleagues have left. uh, uh, And indeed, that has been um, the the push factor 
uh, for people uh, leaving the UK. Uh, and also, equally, that created the pull factor for the increase, as we've seen in the past few years, uh, of the increase of migrant social workers from outside of the UK. Um, and uh, Bre Brexit uh, has an impact both uh, socially as well as economically. Uh, we, we, we know that the push to emigrate abroad is, is due to the unfavourable attitudes uh, in the workplace and in society. Um, when there's talk about um, immigrants taking jobs, etc., um, you know, uh, by key politicians, that hasn't been helpful uh, to promoting a welcoming environment for people to stay. Uh, and of course, um, with Brexit and now the cost of living, uh, that has also created a, 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 um, a financial yeah, disincentive for people to remain where there are better work conditions, either in the European Union or. Uh, in other countries like Australia. There is, I just, I just observing on this, Duke, uh, I used the word immigrant in my question, you used the word immigrant in your response, and to be an immigrant describes your, you know, you can emigrate from a country, you can immigrate to a country. It shouldn't be a value-loaded um, term, but it feels like it's become a really, the way it's being used in terms of just uh, British, uh, the British government's um, policies around um, the small boats and everything, it feels like it's, a, it's almost like a toxic term to use now. Uh, and that it kind of makes me feel unsettled, but it shouldn't. You know, it's it's just a statement about someone's status, whether they're they've come to a country or you know they're they were born in the country. Um, but do you feel even that term has become an unpleasant one in terms of how it's being used? I believe so. Um, I think uh, there is uh, historically in in this country um, uh, uh, a very. Um, I don't know, what, what do you call it, a, a discriminatory kind of um, uh, perspective on uh, people who come from abroad. Um, and it reflects in the conversations, the national conversations, um, because it's very much uh, UK-centric. It's very much about people coming here to settle and to take jobs, etc. Um, but people don't realise that a part of that discussion is also about people moving from here uh, as well. And increasingly, we're seeing people making those choices. So very well qualified professionals, whether they're doctors, consultants, or social workers, etc, choosing to actually move their labour abroad to better countries. Um, but we don't often hear of that. We often hear in the media about people coming here as immigrants. Um, so, um, uh, you know, um, that, that has, has historically been the case. And not long ago, in fact, when I um, arrived at Heathrow in 2000 uh, and uh, I think it was 2002, um, there was the word foreigner, uh, sorry, there was, there was the word alien used uh, as well in some uh, signage uh, around Heathrow. And, and that was in 2002. Uh, so you can see that, um, uh, you know, historically there has been um, a kind of, us versus them mentality uh, in uh, respect to uh, the media, but also in terms of policy and practice, which is quite concerning. Um, thankfully, that word has been removed um, and we're using the word foreigners uh, <laughs> um, and also the, the words immigrant with uh, an equal measure of, um, of I suppose, um, of, yeah, of, of negativity. Um, and it's it's very unfortunate, really, uh, because it doesn't uh, provide a, a welcoming environment for um, the, in people who who wish to either study or work or live here, 
to uh, thrive and to feel welcomed. And within that wider context then, Priya, are you aware of overseas social workers experiencing racism in the UK? Yeah, definitely. Racism has been well documented. And um, the Social Worker uh, England report called State of the Nation makes specific re- reference to this issue. Uh, the research they, uh, they supported found, I'm going to give you some stats, they found 28% of uh, respondents reported experiencing racism from colleagues and managers themselves at least once. 37% reported experiencing racism from service users and families at least once. 10% of respondents had considered leaving the organization because of the experiences of racism. And 8% had considered leaving the profession due to this and the range of impact on their mental health, physical health, and career outcomes. So workplace discrimination is not uncommon for social workers who come from overseas. And we can support employers to introduce anti-discriminatory and anti uh, racist policy and procedures to address this. But in reality, they need to walk the walk and talk the talk. And, you know, the changes definitely have to happen. Yes, racism is prevalent. And Priya, that's really shocking. 28% of respondents reported experiencing racism from colleagues and managers at least once. I mean, that that really is, that's shocking. And is it an issue that you think um, employers are taking seriously enough? I would say yes. And uh, I, I that's a that's a very valid question. Uh, I think um, some some local authorities do take it seriously, but um, then I think we we need to do more. Then we need to do more because this is we as we started the um, podcast. We said there's a huge cohort of overseas social workers, and many of them experiencing this is not it's not um, a small number. So there needs to be much more. Um, people are aware of it, but how much they um, take it that seriously and deal with this. And I think more they they need, you know, sitting in a place of discomfort and being able to talk about it and and address it is so important. And I think um, there's a difficulty even speaking about it by, you know, in local authorities who do speak about anti-discriminatory practice. So the more we speak, the more conscious people become. I think the situation will help. And do you have a sense that overseas social workers, because they, they've they only come to the UK recently, feel more vulnerable or less empowered to speak out about racism they've experienced? Uh, just to clarify, we, you know, overseas social workers are here for many, 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 many years. Okay. Yeah. So it, they are not, you know, I, I, Duke and myself, we've been here in the last 20 plus years. So, and I have many colleagues who have been here. And um, so it is, uh, it is not about colleagues not speaking out. Um, there's a lot of replications too, you know, and, you know, even when you take legal advice and things like that, it's, it's one word against the other. So it's quite difficult even to prove um, and it is, and it can be quite stressful and traumatic when it is your workplace, and that's where you get your monthly pay. It's you know your colleagues, so it's not an easy um, you know um, stand to take, and uh, many people struggle with it quietly. Yeah, I apologize. I think in my mind, I was thinking of the social workers who were maybe hadn't um, secured residency yet. Um, you know, who were maybe on their five year visa. That's oh, what okay. I was thinking. You know, kind of yeah, the vulnerability. I think it's more for them. That that's a good point. That's okay. it's more for them. Yeah, it's more for them because they, you know, again, they are on the local authorities' visa. They don't have a permanent residence. You know, there's uh, the more you want to shush it, you just want to get on with life, isn't it? 
Priya, Duke, you have both been here for a significant amount of time. Uh, so I want to ask about the challenges that um, overseas social workers face when they come to the UK. So this will supposed to be reflecting on your own experiences, but also in terms of the experiences that you're um, having fed through to you through the diaspora, um, special interest group as well with social workers who have arrived more recently. But if we think about challenges faced by social workers coming to the UK, um, can we look at those in terms of short-term challenges and long-term challenges? You know, Duke, what, what are the short-term challenges that a social worker is going to face um, when they arrive in the UK? I would say um, the short-term challenge would be the lack of practical and financial support, particularly um, faced with the cost of living. Uh, in this environment. Um, so we need to remember that even before the social worker arrives, they have to pay for the registration fee and the scrutiny fee if they are with Social Work England, so they'll have to pay for any police checks and visa fees, pay for their flight and travel costs, which can easily exceed uh, £2,000. Um, on arrival, the new recruits must pay for their accommodation, commuting and living expenses. Uh, and this uh, would vary from region to region, but it could be as high as uh, three th over 3,000 per month uh, if they were living in central London, for instance. So um, there is quite a lot of financial uh, outlay. Of course, this is met by the relocation package, but uh, that does not last long, um, you know, two to three months into the uh, initial settlement. So, so tell me about that relocation package. What is that typically worth? Um, so I think that's about probably about seven seven thousand seven and a half thousand or eight thousand now, uh, and that is a relocation package offered by um, often the employer it could be a local authority, um, and that is managed by the recruitment agency, um, uh, which then dispenses that in accordance what with what they need to spend on such as um, the, the first bond um, to uh, you know for their rent. Um, the first uh, um, rent uh, and um, white goods, uh, any um, costs in terms of groceries, etc., to set them up really. So the relocation package is help. It does help to uh, get people settled, as well as to uh, pay for the other uh, ex administrative expenses that I mentioned around visas and okay. Uh, registration. The was recommended that employers develop um, further relocation assistance. Is that correct? Yes, I, I certainly. Uh, I think I think eight thousand um, is 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 generous, but as I said, it can easily disappear within two to three months. So it's really important that um, there is an ongoing conversation to review um, that in light of the cost of living expenses that we're facing. Um, so uh, you know the relocation package, which which may have been agreed uh, with the agency and the uh, worker about 12 months ago um, may now be very different. So I would suggest definitely um, with Baswa that um, employers do review the packages to um, uh, ensure that um, the social worker is provided enough uh, with enough financial um, support to get them settled at least, uh, you know, in, in the first six, six to 12 months. Okay, so Duke, that that's talking about financial uh, challenges, challenges that social workers are going to face when they arrive in the UK. But more than that, you know, I'm thinking about you know integrating into a new community, schools for kids, registering for a GP, and so on. Are these things difficult to navigate? Priya, can you talk about your experience there? I think for me, I was um, very fortunate with the particular local authority getting a school for my son and. Um, 
you know, uh, but uh, finding a house for us. But not many local authorities do all that. Um, you know, so and and also specific things relevant, very relevant to UK. Probably they ask you to open a bank account, but you can't open a bank account without a utility bill. But you don't have a, <laughs> you've not been in the <laughs> yeah. country for long enough. So yeah. it's like a catch-22 situation, you know. And um, so, and basic things like probably thinking about the roadmaps or you don't know the north from the south and you're asked to hit the ground running as a social worker. So, you know, the way to get to different places, you don't know it. Thank God for the sat-nav now. Um, but, you know, so we have that. And, you know, but, but in terms of other practical issues, such as, the, you know, uh, uh, finding, getting your NI number, your bank, your TV license and all those nitty-gritties. And having no family with you, if you, you know, it's not easy to, you know, if you come here, you don't have anyone. Childcare is a big issue. Um, we spend a lot of money on childcare. I remember spending, having very little after sending my son for childcare, you know, it's so, it's, it's, it's uh, and not having your extended family to leave your son and go to or your, you know, so those are practical issues. And the big change of leaving everything you know and have and coming to a completely foreign country, I think, um, I, I don't think the extent of change has been uh, really uh, understood, or, you know, or thought about by, uh, you know, by, by managers who take them in because they don't go through that. So only when you go through that, you understand, oh my God, all this happens. Or even finding a job for your spouse and things like that. So there's a number of things that it takes pretty much a year to really settle down. And some people don't settle down even in a year. So, yeah. Yeah. So are any of those issues taken into consideration in supervision, for example, with the manager, you know, when you're you're exploring just how things are going? Would any of those issues be touched on typically? As I, I personally feel uh, there is a lot more knowledge that managers should have about, um, um, you know, when they recruit overseas social workers to understand that huge change they are going through. I don't think to the extent of it. Yes, it might be touched on in terms of some practical issues, but I don't think the whole thing is even understood you know, and that is why I can say, you know, by people who came with me, only two of us remain or three of us, you know, in the first three years, people left, you know, people went back because it just could not settle down. And there are still cohorts like that. So I and, and it is so, so key that the operational manager actually understands that you have. Um, apart from, you know, that this is not a short gap, you know, uh, filling us, this is not a short term arrangement. They've come here to make a difference or they come here, you know, so how do we actually support in retaining them? And that can only be done by um, stepping a little bit in their shoes and supporting them as they need to uh, so that we can um, help them to settle down and uh, feel this is the place I actually want to work uh, in. Yeah. And when you start working and you start engaging with um, people who are using services, when you start reading the newspapers and watching the TV in this country, something I, I think that might be a challenge for overseas social workers coming to the UK is the public's perception and the media portrayal of social work, um, the standing of the profession in, in the UK. How does the standing of the profession in the UK compare to other countries, Priya? I think, I think um, definitely very different. Uh, because people who come from, um, you know, third world countries, social work is a very therapeutic, supporting, uh, you know, job. But here you have 
um, the statutory element to it. You have the safeguarding element to it. You have the Ofsted element to it. So there is always this fear of being blamed. There's always a fear of being, you know, doing the wrong thing, you know, and uh, the you're, uh, you're answerable to court, you know. So there's always this um, a stress about not getting things right. Um, so, so I can, I can, uh, there are, you know, in, there are many um, colleagues who have done very good jobs and come here and suddenly, and they come and they are placed on the bottom most space scale. And, and um, this, you know, you might come in as an experienced social worker, but you are started off from the lowest space scale. So even in terms of his salary and in terms of the bad press that social workers get here, it's a shock because you come from very good, you know, you might have been a part of a big organization and you come here uh, and then suddenly your um, your professional stand comes down because it's a completely different way of working. And that, yes. um, yeah, and that's a kind of, um, there's too much of bad press, sadly, for social workers here that doesn't help, just not only for overseas social workers, for any social worker, I guess. So it makes it more difficult for overseas social workers. With all that in mind, Priya and, and Duke as well, I mean, this is a bit of a cheeky question, but if you were to start again 20 years ago, would you still come to the UK or is there anywhere else in the world you think you, you would prefer to have chosen? If I have to answer... You don't, Priya, you don't have to answer. I'll make that very clear. <laughs> okay, Priya goes first. Uh, if I have to answer... If I see, I came in. Um, mine was a fairy tale story. I was recruited from the Middle East and just flown in, and everything was paid. But the reality only stuck in after I came here. I didn't know this is what I'm coming so to. So you were practicing in the so Middle if, East before you came here, so not not yes, not I was India. Practice, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, I was practicing in the Middle East when I, you know, I was recruited from there. Um, so, um, but the, the, these, you know, this, I only realized how stretched local authorities are here after coming here. So if I was told this is what it will be, I would have not Okay, come. that's very yeah. honest. Thank you. Um, Duke, what about yourself? Um, if I was making that decision uh, to travel or not, um, uh, and to practice as a social worker, uh, then probably no um, is the answer. Simply because I think the um, uh, the years of two thousand, the early years of two thousand, um, are very much di- very different to uh, uh, twenty twenty three. You've got the cost of living crisis, and uh, you know, very people are trying to get on uh, with the uh, salaries that they have. Uh, then also, you know, the kind of level of discrimination that. Uh, you know that is in the media and from some individuals and politicians <laughs> um, around um, you know where migrants are and, and what they should be doing etc has really not been welcoming and so I don't think it's as welcoming uh, in 2023 as it was in 2000 uh, in the early 2000s when I um, have come over and really my motivation was to uh, explore Europe and with Brexit of course uh, it feels like as though the UK is on its own and it's not part of Europe. So um, it, it doesn't actually um, affect my, um, uh, you know, my travels or my plans to continually travel, uh, but um, just the uh, kind of social and political environment is, is not as welcoming as, as, I, um, as I had experienced it. Yes, I mean, the impacts of Brexit, they are. They affect, I suppose, anyone who had a European outlook is feeling that as well now, Dick. Mercifully, I have the the blessing of being able to have an Irish passport. So, in some yeah. ways, in some ways, the you feel you can kind of skirt around that. Um, but in terms of yeah, being 
living in the UK, you still feel that. Um, in terms of cultural issues, um, practicing in the UK, so I'm thinking about specific issues, perhaps, you know, around the way we define family in the UK with a very kind of clear focus on the nuclear family, at least as a society. I'm not talking about necessarily just within social work, but as a society. Um, attitudes to corporal punishment have changed quite significantly in the last number of decades. Are those issues, are those sorts of issues that social workers coming from overseas um, have to contend with or challenged by? Yeah, definitely, because I think that's where uh, induction and training is very important uh, because the um, there is a cultural difference between, um, you know, uh, parenting and raising children in terms of British standards to to other countries, and um, and it's and expectations are different, and there's always um, you know um, so it's it's important that uh, people are trained to understand what the expectation here is, um, and so um, you know there is no minimizing of concerns, or there are no overseeing of concerns, or um, and and I think. Um, and that is why induction and training is so key, especially if you're going into, um, uh, you know, teams which has which is dealing with uh, safeguarding. I'd read a couple of papers pre- in preparation for this academic papers that I found really helpful. And one was about the experiences of Indian social workers who had come to the UK. And one was about the experiences of South African social workers who had moved to England. And they both, both of the findings stressed the sort of the collectivist nature of um, attitudes in society in India and South Africa compared to a really individual, uh, individualist um, kind of focus in the UK. Is that one in particular? I'm just, um, just based on that paper because it was... Um, exploring the experiences of Indian social workers. Priya, does that chime with your experience coming to the UK? Absolutely, because, and I think uh, um, uh, in terms of, um, there's a lot of um, use of the family and the community to raise a child. Um, And here, being very individualistic and nuclear family and not having that support um, is actually a shame. Because, and if you see the social care review that's come out recently, they are very clearly saying, go look for, you know, go and look for family members, look for ones who will support your children. And that's very, that's very close to my heart because that's something that we will do back home. You know, you know, somebody, something happens, someone will step in to say, um, you know, this is my, my sister will take care of my children or my brother will take care of you know, and you feel confident about it uh, and it's quite sad to see that uh, to see that is not happening here but but I think we are now beginning to um, think about families a little bit more and the social care review that's come up re- you know recently that has clearly said go and search for forever families within your extended family network and we've seen wherever that's been done it's it's worked out very well yeah, definitely. I think it's a big cultural change. Um, but I think also um, this is one of the uh, opportunities for uh, us in the UK to learn from other cultures too. Um, for instance, uh, I know family case conference is a big, you know, is a big methodology, and that's been widely discussed and used. And the um, is that from is that New Zealand? We made an episode on case yeah. conference, and I should remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So that's that's from overseas, but um, it was inspired by a Maori sort of um, background, wasn't it? It was an indigenous. Yeah, yeah. that's okay. right. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, as as the saying goes, you know, it, it it takes a tribe to raise a child. 
And so, um, you know, having having that collectivist uh, approach is really important. And the application uh, in the UK has been positive with us redefining what a family is. So when people are called to a family case conference, uh, we look beyond uh, what a nuclear family uh, traditionally would look like. Uh, and for a case conference like such, it would be those who are taking an active role in either supporting the child or the vulnerable adult or the individual. Uh, so, you know, so taking that more um, system system and collectivist approach is actually beneficial uh, in, in many uh, circumstances of practice. Duke, I think that's a lovely point to finish. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Please don't be strangers. I'd love to have you back on again, both of you, at some time in the future. But thank you for now. Thank you so much for coming on to Let's Talk Social Work, Duke and Priya. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. Bye-bye. Thank you.